Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and thank you for downloading episode 27 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. This is the show for those of you who love to have their finger on the pulse of English and Spanish language pop culture. I'm pretty psyched about the show this week. Um, we have two guests, and I love them both. io9 Gizmodo's Beth Elderkin wrote this truly enjoyable article defending diversity in comic books. And she also enlightens me on the three key problems affecting uh, the comic industry as well. Also, I welcome one of the youngest business owners in America. Her name is Megan Grossel to talk to me about how at 17, she came up with an idea that changed the course of her life. This past week, in a candid interview, David Gabriel, a VP for Marvel Comics, essentially said that from his observations, the reason comic book sales have been shrinking is because of the new diversity strategy that Marvel has been implementing. This means female characters and ethnic characters are to be blamed. Dozens of articles were written about Gabriel's statement, but perhaps the most impassioned article I read on the subject was from our next guest, io9 Gizmodo's Beth Elderkin, who put it best, quote, Gabriel's point is bullshit, end quote. <laughs> Beth, welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You really, it seems like you took this really personal. I read the whole article and it was one of the best articles I read on this. Why did you take such a stance on this? It just almost seemed personal to you. Well, I wouldn't call it personal because it's not something that makes me personally aggravated. It's more from a professional perspective. Now, the issue that I took with it wasn't necessarily fully that he was speaking about diversity. It was that he was speaking about diversity only. When there is a huge plethora of other issues that Marvel Comics have that retailers were presenting during that very summit. It's just when he's asked about it, he goes not only into the one thing he has no control over, which is his audience's supposed response to diversity, but it's also something that he doesn't actually have to do anything about that is not something he has to take personal responsibility for or the company. So let's go over the three reasons that you think that this is pure, pure ignorance. You think that a lot of blame should be pointed at bloated crossover storylines, comic book prices, and even talent management. Let's go through the first one, bloated crossover storylines. I thought that was a really great insight that you had on that. Thank you. Well, I mean, the way I like to word it, you know, among friends is it's essentially right now Every month, Marvel is introducing a brand new Cousin Oliver to the Brady Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 
and events are a great idea. I mean, you've got the Netflix Marvel shows, you know, that are coming out. They've had Jessica Jones, they've had Iron Fist, they've had uh, Luke Cage, and they're bringing them all together in the Defenders. Excellent idea. You had years set setting up the Avengers. You've had the Justice League getting set up for a number of years in their films as well. Right. So crossovers and events are a fun, exciting way to bring fans of different characters together. But Marvel, for the past several months, has been doing one on top of the other, thinking that this is going to get their audience excited. But it starts to get boring and it starts to get overcomplicated. Like, I want to follow Secret Empires. Oh, wait, now I have to go into this Generations one. Like, what am I supposed to read and pay attention to? Secondly, you talked about comic book prices. Now, I think that this is one that... Uh I think really sort of matters simply because of uh, economy. You know, a lot of people who buy comic books are kids and kids don't necessarily always have five ninety nine, you know, on, in their pocket just to buy a comic book, right? Yeah, I mean, the comic books have been increasing in prices over a number of years. And this isn't exactly a surprise. I mean, as the, you know, as things, as, you know, supply and demand prices increase, I'm not going to say, oh, it needs to be a nickel back in, you know, the day of my parents or grandparents. But mm -hmm. when you're also introducing new characters or new versions of characters and expecting someone to pay $4.99, $5.99 for someone they don't know if they're going to get the best bang for their buck, they're not going to do it. And so the, you know, the price point ends up becoming a hindrance. And that's something a lot of fans have been noticing for a long time. What do you think the solution for something like that would be? Like, I was kind of kicking it and, you know, and I thought... Well, if you're going to introduce a new character, um, maybe you should lower the price of the comic. And if you have legacy characters, maybe they should just kind of stay at the regular price that they are. But give us a chance to buy the comic book at a lower price, see if we like it. And if we respond in the form of sales, then maybe you can kind of get it back to where that price should be normally with along with the legacy characters. Well, that's something a lot of, um, you know, a lot of independent comics do, and especially book series, like independent book series, especially ones that are self-published on Amazon. They'll, you know, have a full series and then they'll make the first book more affordable and be like, here, check this out. If you like it, here's the rest that makes of the sense, series. Right. So, you know, it, it shows not only trust Marvel's, it would show Marvel's trust in the character and their journey, and it would also put faith in the audience that, you know, we're going to give you a chance to get to know what we want to give you. And if you want to continue, you're going to have to pay a little bit more, but they'll, by then they'll already be invested. And then we can talk about talent management, mm -hmm. which was one thing that I didn't really think about. But to be quite frank with you, you're absolutely right. I think most of the great talent that's at Marvel has either left because of a uh, lack of salary because they don't pay them well because uh, they don't do enough work to be able to afford uh, their basic necessities. What have you been hearing about talent management in the industry that 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 has that that Marvel hasn't been able to keep really great uh, talent? Well, this really speaks to the changing economy that we have in terms of you know novel production, comic book production, music, board games. Just today I was interviewing a self-published card game designer who, you know, does everything himself through Kickstarter and through Patreon and his his stuff is best selling nowadays on major websites. So the addition of self-publishing or partnering with places like Image where you get more creative control and you get a bigger chunk of the profits, you know, if if that gives you the opportunity to do what you love, 
You know, a lot mm-hmm. of creators are going to go to that. Uh, Marvel and DC have had an issue with keeping talent on the payroll. You know, they'll come in for a first issue of a new of a new character or a new series, get invested, and then possibly fade out or, you know, contract negotiations fail, fail on the follow-up. But they haven't been able to keep the talent. And that honestly is something that is hard to do because of how our, you know, how the self-publishing economy has changed a lot of things. But Marvel does need to make a stronger effort to hold on to those artists and writers and make it worth their time to stay. And what I have noticed is that a lot of the talent nowadays in the comic book industry uh, are of uh, are diverse. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Hispanic uh, talent uh, from Spain uh, in the United States uh, that are excellent, you know? So the fact, if you remove those guys out of the equation, then things get a little bit stale. Um, do you know which were the characters uh, that Marvel... Uh, silently were, was blaming uh, for for their sales slump? Oh, they, I mean, over the past, like, 18 months, Marvel has done a big diversity push that has a wide variety of characters. Which I have applauded them. I was like, oh, wow, you guys are really progressive. Yeah, now. so it's not really any one character that they can single out. In fact, some of their more diverse characters, like Black Panther or Miss Marvel... Uh, have actually been Miles. doing Miles. Oh, Miles yeah. Morales, exactly. They've been doing very well. So it's not particular. He wasn't pointing out like this character is the plight of our downfall, or you know this particular storyline. He was saying the movement as a whole for them to increase diversity. Let me ask you something because this is something that I'm also very interested in knowing. Like I understand that uh, David Gabriel, the uh, VP at Marvel, had had said this in an interview, but. He's also speaking from the point of view of a businessman. And his job is to kind of look at the research that the readers give him. So the source isn't necessarily Marvel. The source is information that he got from the actual readers. Uh, Don't readers call the shots here? And shouldn't we put some of the blame on the readers themselves? Well, when he, in the interview, you know, David Gabriel was very clear to say that this was from his talks with the retailers. This wasn't from focus groups. This wasn't from a survey that they sent out to their general populace. He basically he, he said this was something. So comic stores. Yeah, this was in the comic book stores, physical retailers. He was also making a difference between print and digital, although it's kind of murky. So I'm a little iffy on that distinction that was presented. Right. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily he's he's putting it on the readers, but he's putting it through a uh, Marvel is putting it through a filter of the print retailers. So as far as readers responsibility in this particular situation, I don't know how much we can actually assume of that because that's not what he was speaking to. And I don't want to make assumptions about the actual audience. Well, let me ask you this final question. Um do you think from everything that you've been reading and you've been interacting with, um, have you noticed that diversity is actually working for the comic book industry? Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, diversity is one of those things that we we keep having to talk about it as something that people want. Because it's not normal. I mean, I grew up without, um, I'm 42 mm-hmm. years old. I grew up uh, reading comics in the 80s. I never saw a Hispanic character or a, or a real black character in comic books. They were all white. I mean, TV was white. Everything was white to me. 
I feel like it's recent that we've kind of seen a push uh, of diversity in the arts and culture uh, of our country. And I think that for some reason, comic books, diversity in comic books, it, it hasn't necessarily stood out like the way maybe television and movies has right now with Moonlight winning Best Picture. I feel like we haven't had that peak era of diversity in the comic book industry. And so there are questions whether uh, perhaps changing like Spider-Man went from Peter Parker to Miles Morales. That was, an you know, we had to adapt and acclimate ourselves to the fact that this wasn't the character that we grew up with for the last 20, 30 years of our childhood, you know? So that's why I th more the, the question, I guess, is more along the lines of, has it been a home run on a business level? And I think that that's what maybe Gabriel was kind of insinuating. Well, if you look at, you know, for one example, uh, Miss Marvel, because uh, G. Willow Wilson, who's one of the co-creators, published an excellent response to um, what, you know, David Gabriel was saying and saying, you know, my book, for example, has been nominated, has won a Hugo Award. It just got nominated for another one this year. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's one of the top selling comics of the past several years. And it was a new character who has a new perspective and a brand new experience that hadn't been shared in comics before. People, you know, this generation is more apt to acknowledging, understanding, and embracing diversity. I know part of that is because of social media. We are now more exposed to more points of view. But of course, with that, you've had a big backlash, particularly from legacy readers and fans who liked things when it was in their comfort zone, when it was something that they were familiar with. So, you know, obviously in comic books, diversity has not reached its peak. I don't know if it ever will. And I don't know if I ever want it to reach a peak because when you have a peak, there's only one way to go from there. Down. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather just keep seeing, you know, comic book companies, independent retail, independent publishers, writers, artists, really embracing diversity in new and exciting and nuanced ways. And one of the biggest ways we can do that is start bringing more writers and artists you know of color and in you know diverse backgrounds marginalized groups to tell these stories like with riri william riri williams and iron man that was written by a couple guys drawn by a guy it's you know we didn't have a black woman there to tell her story and that's something that we can definitely see improved in the future as well um and before we uh leave uh there was one quote that i really enjoyed and it was the ending of your article that said quote bringing back older characters doesn't inspire confidence that marvel cares about continuing the newer ones marvel comics have a lot of problems diversity is just the easiest one to blame Thank you so much, Beth, uh, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time here and your insights. You can read the Beth Elderkin's full article on io9.gizmodo.com. Beth, thanks a lot for being on. Thanks for having me. It's time for Jacked In. Let's begin with the top tech social media news of the week. You guys know that new feature on Facebook called Facebook Stories? Well, no one's using it. YouTube is now selling traditional TV in a 50-channel bundle for $35 a month over the internet. Will you buy it? Google is featuring fact-check tags in search now. And if you love making fun social media videos, you're going to love Apple's new Clips app. Think Instagram video meets Snapchat filters. Moving on to movie news, Chilean director Pablo Larraín is attached to direct Tom Hardy's new movie, The 
True American, PBS acquired Latino documentary Dolores about workers' rights activist Dolores Huerta. Mexican actor Demian Bichir will start in a spin-off to The Conjuring, and Sony will remake the Mexican movie Miss Bala from executive producers Diego Luna and Gael Garcia Bernal. Changing over to the small screen, Ricky Martin has been cast in FX's upcoming American crime story, Versace. USA's Queen of the South will return for its second season on Thursday, June 8th at 10 p.m. Mexican-American quarterback Tony Romo retires from football and joins CBS Sports. CNN's Anna Navarro will be a guest on Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO April 7th. And Gina Rodriguez was on Today This Week and talked about the equal pay gap. The beautiful thing about, you know, uh, the gender gap is having the conversations like this. So once sure. we start bringing awareness, then we can start creating change. Switching over to music. Harry Styles of One Direction has released his highly anticipated first solo single, Sign of the Times, and fans are in hysteria. Shakira also dropped her new single titled Minamore from her upcoming album due this year. Juanes will present an intimate 30-minute special on HBO Latino Friday, May 19th. Spain's Latin Grammy-winning pop rock band La Oreja de Van Gogh announced a world tour that includes New York, LA, and Puerto Rico, kicking off May 3rd, and Pitbull, J Balvin, and Camila Cabello released an English version of Hey Ma. Megan Grossel is the owner of Yellowberry, a bra company for young girls who are buying their first bra between ages of 11 and 15 years of age. Now, to many of you, this might sound completely normal, but Megan started the company when she was 17 years old. Most 17-year-old girls are still in high school doing their homework and hanging out with their friends. She's now 21, and already this inspirational young entrepreneur has been featured on the Today Show, the New York Times, Forbes Magazine, and was named Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential Teens in 2014. She now joins me to discuss how she built a successful company at such a young age. Megan Grossel, thanks for coming on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. What triggered the idea for Yellowberry, and when did the concept of a serious business model become real to you? So I started because I actually have a younger sister, and I took her shopping to buy her first bra, and we went to all these different stores, and I'm from Wyoming, and so when you like, shopping day sort of becomes a whole day excursion because you have to drive to a town big enough that has a mall. And we went to all these different places, and I felt like we kept seeing this super sexy padded push-up bra that was not just available for her, but, like, marketed specifically to girls her age. And it was just kind of weird. You know, she walks out of the dressing room in what was suggested as, like, a great first bra option for a girl. It was literally a leopard print push-up bra. (laughs) And she was, like, it was just awkward. And she was kind of embarrassed, like, didn't really know what to say. We didn't really talk about it. And I remember leaving the day being like, why is this? sort of the way things are that girls have to buy these products or they buy a sports bra, but there wasn't really anything made specifically for them. And so I had this epiphany where I was like, you know what, if no one else is going to make, you know, bras specifically for young girls, then I'll find a way to do it myself. So having like literally zero retail or apparel experience, like none of my parents are from the textile industry. Um, I figured that to make a bra, you need some fabric and some thread. And so I sourced, some sample yardage from somewhere on the internet and bought some, you know, other materials in my So it my was like town. a DIY then, project, like a do-it-yourself oh, 100%, project. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah. And so I, like, took this basket of, like, things into a seamstress in my town and was like, hi, Cielo, can you make a bra for me? And I had kind of a sketch of an idea of what I wanted to make. And so together, 
well, I say together, she was the one really making the paper patterns and things um, for these samples. And then I eventually found a really small manufacturer to build my first 400 units for me. Um, but to your question about like sort of the bigger concept of like creating a business, like I was making the products because I knew I was going to sell them. But I felt even from like day one that this is a really big idea because every girl in the world goes through this period of like buying her first bra and it's overwhelmingly like really negative. Like I learned that when I was talking to a lot of women who, what I didn't realize what like really remembered that moment because it was kind of just awful. And so I was like, how could I build this brand in this community to like create a really positive, like happy confidence boosting first bra experience. And so I felt like every piece of the brand had to really like, bleed through with that message so the name yellowberry for example if you think about a berry before it's fully like red or purple or ripe Mm -hmm. it goes through different yellow stages so it's like the yellow years of a girl's life the point being that we're like celebrating those years rather than girls just kind of rushing through to rushing to grow up did you see a movie called joy uh a few years ago yes Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because your whole story. I love that movie. Yeah. It's with Jennifer Lawrence, who, uh, who, uh, yeah. for those people who haven't seen it and have an entre- entrepreneurial spirit, that movie is incredible to raise the yeah. spirits and to drive the inspiration of anybody wants, that wants to start their own company. Uh, you were in her situation. She had a lot more struggles than you did. She was a mother. Right. Uh, she had kids. Right. You know, she had the problems with her yeah. family. You didn't have to go through that, but your your challenge was age. Uh, when you first yeah. started doing this business, was there any skepticism from investors, from other people saying, wait a minute, she's 17. What does she know about business? Uh, absolutely. I mean, and I think even so to this day, that's one of my biggest challenges. Um, when I first started, like you said, I was 17 and I had this little sketch of some ideas and some like what my bras were going to look like. And I remember sitting down with people and being like, you know, explaining my idea and they sort of just would like, wow, you're like, oh, that's a really kind of cute hobby or something. But no one really took it seriously until like I just sort of kept moving forward. And I specifically remember actually sitting down with a woman um, um, and just sort of trying to ask some questions and learn some things from her. And she after I sort of explained what I wanted to do, she like put her hands on mine across the table and was like, honey, I think you should probably finish high school before you try start trying to like <laughs> revolutionize any type of bra industry. Wow. And I was, I was so angry. Like I was and so offended and insulted, I, was, like, I assume. Yeah. And I, and I think that like, as I, as we continued forward and the company has grown and that always, you know, tends to be an, somewhat of a, not an issue, but just like something that I have to overcome, especially with investors or building a team or, you know, I, um, I love being like the age that I am and really kind of, um, I'm learning so much, but, um, no, it's definitely something I still deal with today too. <laughs> In order to get a business up and running, you need financial resources. How are you able to find it and who managed the finances of your company uh, to begin with? Um, so to start with, I had just my savings account that I, you know, I worked on a ranch and I worked in a restaurant. Um, and so I used kind of my like savings account to fund my first uh, like bra purchase like from my um, manufacturer Mm -hmm. and then after that I got to the point where I was like I needed to raise the money because when I launched the company um in January 2014 I literally sold like four bras in the first four months because no one really knew what I I was doing right so you needed marketing you needed to raise awareness of the product yeah and so I was like you know at 17 I'm like okay mom and dad like 
can I borrow some money or something? And they were sort of like, ha, you're on your own. And so I launched a Kickstarter campaign with the goal to raise $25,000 that I thought would be enough to kind of either hire someone to help or really start marketing that. And that campaign, I launched my senior year in high school and it kind of went viral because wow. the idea of like, bras with girls don't have to be sexy was like a crazy idea. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like literally it took a couple of days going in and then like overnight it went from like zero to $25,000 raised, um, which was unbelievable and like so surreal to live through that. Um, and then after that, so I, the campaign did, I think like 42 or $43,000 in total, which was like amazing. And I was so excited and we had all this press and PR that continued. And so I ended up raising a seed round of funding from some angel investors in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is where I'm from. Um, and that was my first round of financing. And so you met these VCs, how, how did you find it online? Did someone introduce you to these VCs? How were you able to connect with them? Um, well, the, uh, so no VCs yet. It was just eight, five angel investors. And so um, there's actually, I'm very fortunate that in Jackson Hole, there's a lot of people that um, have are sort of like second homeowners or have like had a great career and then moved to Jackson to retire. So there's actually quite a bit of like funding in the valley. There. Yes, <laughs> yes, for lack of a better term. Um, and so there's also this great organization in Jackson called the Silicon Pular which is basically a network in which they try to connect like young entrepreneurs um, with business owners and investors and people that can, That's you wonderful. know, no, just networking. And so they have this every year they do pitch day. And so they have a hand, I think like five or six startup companies pitch to a room full of angel investors and VCs to raise seed funding. And I was, so I did that in um, like August of 2014, two days after my like 18th birthday or something. And I was so terrified. And ironically, it was on the same stage that I graduated high school on like three months before where I like refused Crazy. to speak because I was so like terrified of public speaking. Um, but it went okay. And I ended up um, opening and closing around within like 50 days, which um, was really fast. <laughs> At any point, were you confronting a moment of struggle and challenge that you felt like you wanted to quit? Like this was just way over your head and this was too big of a mountain for you to to actually uh, climb. Um, yeah. Like I, this is far and above like the most difficult thing that I've ever done. And I think even today, like there are things that happen that it's just like, oh my God, like what, what are we going to do or how am I going to overcome this? Um, I think especially in the beginning, like I worked on Yellowberry in my bedroom for like a year and a half before I sold one bra. And that was really challenging because I didn't really have anyone like believing in the idea or like supporting me. And my parents are great, but they were kind of like, I don't think they really got it in the beginning. And so it wasn't until I had sort of like proof of sales and watching all this like Kickstarter stuff take off that they kind of got it. Um, and I, I mean, I think that anything when you do it sort of totally by yourself and you're, you know, chartering into new water, like it's, um, it's real, it's just tough because there's not a step-by-step -step rule book or like guidebook. Um, and you know, things happen, you know, a customer gets really angry and you're like, Oh my gosh, how do you fix this? Or like really big things happen where you like, receive a bunch of inventory that's all wrong that your customers are waiting on and you're like oh my god what are we going to do now um but it's also i think 
somewhat of like the beauty of a startup is that you have to be super agile and like make really fast decisions and make big tough decisions often. Um, but you know, it's kind of like everyday problem solving. So you do the best you can and just keep moving forward. So a lot of your business knowledge is intuition and then it's kind of common sense. And then you probably talk to a couple of business people in there that give you advice and you kind of got to go with that, right? Absolutely. I mean, we say every day that like, this is not rocket science. Like, this is, this is challenging. Like we're literally, we're not building rockets. And so it's definitely a lot of it is common sense. And at the end of the day, what we're selling are phenomenal products to make girls really that happy sells itself, and to right. have a great experience. Do you remember the moment when Yellowberry started to take off? Yes. Okay, when was that moment and can you describe that for us? So it was in March of 2013 and it was once I launched my Kickstarter campaign. And so I mentioned that well, like it took off and it was a couple of days in, but there were a lot of kids in my high school that were, not a lot, but there was a handful of kids that were really actually kind of like pretty mean to me about this like <laughs> quote unquote like stupid, terrible bride yeah, that was going to fail and um, like that was sort of awful. And so when I launched my Kickstarter campaign, like you can see publicly that like zero dollars was raised of a $25,000 goal. And so like I was embarrassed to go to school because I felt like everybody could see that I was just totally failing. Um, and then I came home and I was like, you know what? I haven't totally like exhausted every avenue of people that might care about bras for girls. And so I sent like 200 cold emails to people that I thought would care about like, you know, girl empowerment or tween girl fashion or something with like girl entrepreneurs. And one person responded to me. Um, it's a Facebook organization called A Mighty Girl, and they posted about it on their Facebook page, and that's what really took off. But in that moment, um, and just stop me if this is too detailed, but I was actually one of the stupidest things I've ever done. So I had this 30-day period for the campaign, and I was actually gone for 10 of the 30 days on a school trip to Guatemala. <laughs> and so what were before you doing there? I left, it was for like, I was there with Habitat for Humanity. So we were building houses, which was really cool. And I signed up for it as a senior at the beginning of the year, and I was looking forward to it. But I just didn't think through that I was going to miss a third of my campaign, which was just not smart. Um, and so when I left, I had raised like, you know, one or $200 from pretty much like my parents. Um, and I, when we landed in Guatemala City, I was like, oh, maybe I'll check. You know, we have Wi-Fi now, and I didn't think I was going to have any. And so I checked to see where the campaign was, and all of a sudden it was like $20,000 raised. And I sat down in the middle of like the hotel lobby and just started crying because it was, it wasn't people donating like thousands of dollars. It was like 10, 15, $20 like donations that, and, and the amount of enthusiasm from the moms that were like, Oh my gosh, this is exactly what my daughter needs. We had the same experience. I can't believe how sexy bras are for 10 year olds. Like I'm so excited to have found you. And so I cried for like a lot. And then I was totally stuck in another country with Wi-Fi for like 20 minutes a day as my company was like taking off. And I, I literally couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> what a great story. How, how much did social media play into uh, getting the word out on this? How did you use social media in your favor? Um, I mean, in the beginning, like, and I actually like sometimes I'll scroll back to our like original Instagram photos because it's like, it's, it's so strategy. It's like seeing the fabrics when they arrive from a manufacturer and like the first couple samples that were made out of sailboat fabric. And, um, I think it like when I started Yellowberry, I just never realized how important like my founding story would be because it's just what happened. And it was why I started the company and why I believe so intensely in the mission. Um, 
But I think that was what really came across for, for moms and for the girls was that like, it's just a very real story that wasn't created by like an advertising agency, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then once everything took off, it was really seeing the power of Facebook and how that can really like push forward a story, you know, a company sales. Um, and like, it was, it's by far and away like the most powerful tool that we have had for my company, which is special. So, so pray Facebook was basically your primary source of social media that you use. You didn't use Snapchat. Right. I mean, we primarily Facebook. We had a little bit on Instagram for sure, but like our biggest following even today is, is our like moms on Facebook. Um, <laughs> and, and even then, like we weren't even paying for any advertising because it was just all organic. It was word of mouth. What kind of outreach are you doing for young Hispanic and African American girls? So what, so I'm from Wyoming, which is not a super diverse place. Um, but I recently moved to New York City and it was a huge realization of like, we need to really reflect not like just girls from Wyoming, but girls from all over the place. And so, um, it started honestly, like very simply with like making sure that our photography on our website reflects not just one type of girl. Um, and that came really from like just listening to our customers and being like, well, obviously we need to have girls of different backgrounds and ethnicities and sizes to like reflect what girls all over the place look like. And so as we go forward, we've also, um, and sort of like being more strategic with our marketing and segmenting out like digital advertising to make sure that our, you know, it's reaching not just one type of a mom either. That makes sense. Absolutely. And before I let you go, what words of advice do you have for teenagers who also want to start their own company? Should they start young like you or should they wait until they're a little older? I don't think there's any reason to wait. And actually, like what you alluded to with that com- uh, the movie Joy is like she had a lot more to lose than someone who still lives at home with their parents. And I think about that a lot. Like if you ever had enough work or it didn't take off, like the worst that would happen was that like I would probably just go have dinner with my parents and like go to class, you know, like there wasn't a lot to lose. Um, it's definitely challenging, but like, you know, if the worst answer someone can give you is no, then you should at least always ask the question. Um, it's kind of like, that's a mantra that I tell myself often because I'm not by nature super outgoing, but it was really helpful in the beginning because I forced me to really reach out and seek like mentorship and advice from people that perhaps I wouldn't normally have asked. Megan, you have a phenomenal story. And when your movie is made, (laughs) I want to be the first person (laughs) at that premiere sitting in the front row watching uh, and clapping very loudly for all your success. (laughs) Thank you so much. And if you're a parent that is interested in Yellowberry Bras for your daughter, visit yellowberrycompany.com. Megan Grossel, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I'll be watching you closely for all your wins. (laughs) Thank you so much. Before we move on to our review of Broadway's new musical, Amelie, here's a listen to the songs I've been listening to this week. Angel, Juanes. Ganas de verte, Umbe. Azul, Mamundi.
The new Broadway musical Amélie, playing now at the Walter Kerr Theater, is based on the highly imaginative, Oscar-nominated French film from director Jean-Pierre Jeunet. It tells the story of a young, introverted waitress whose colorful and unique view of the world sets her on a destiny course with love. The stage design is explosively vivid, painting a Paris meant exclusively for lovers. The offbeat characters provide an enchanting atmosphere to our innocent and coy gamine. But regrettably, this musical does not match the magic of Junet's masterpiece. Much like the musical Waitress from 2016, the overly sweet spirit of this adaptation was at times too sugary for my tastes. The songs, though, happy and bright, had hits and misses. Lead actress Philippa Sue, making her Broadway star debut, hits all her vocal notes and cues, but it'd be unfair to measure her against the perfection that was Audrey Tattoo's film performance. Overall, Broadway's Amelie is visually impressive, but its color fades against the backdrop of its film counterpart. And that's a wrap for our 27th episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Beth and Megan for coming on the show, and I'd like to thank you for listening. If you want to reach out to us, shoot us an email at highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. That's highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. You can now hear us on the Revolver Podcast Network, which means we're on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, and Stitcher. Also, please subscribe and share with your friends. See you again next Friday on another episode of Highly Relevant. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.